Derek, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and as you're going there, or as you're calling it up on your smartphone, I'm going to just kind of tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing for the uh, summer. We're going to uh, be doing this series called Gallery 13. And what we want to do is take the entire summer and look at discipleship. And we want to look at discipleship through a, a very particular lens. And I'll say it this way. We don't want to focus this summer on the how of discipleship because uh, I believe that E3 and Dan, Pastor Dan, have done such a great job that if you want to know how to become a disciple at E3, you should walk out after the gathering to the Pathways booth and get on what we call the discipleship track. Years literally have been put into thinking through how to create a disciple through different experiences, through different activities. So I don't want to, or we don't want to focus so much on the how of discipleship for the summer. But what I did think would be really, really cool would, would be to focus on the who and the what. So I got to thinking of what, what if we took the summer and just literally went through portraits of discipleship in the New Testament? What does it look like? Who are disciples and what can we learn from them? So for the next 12, 13 weeks, we're going to be going through different people in the New Testament that represent disciples. And we're not going to just focus on the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. We're going to be looking at other characters in the Gospels. We're actually going to be looking at characters in the book of Acts, in Paul's letters, in other letters. Some of these people we know an awful lot about. Some of them, if you grew up in church at all, you're going to know their stories. Others are gonna be a little bit more obscure. But what they all teach us and what my hope is, is that every single person we look, we look at, we get some kind of glimpse of what a disciple can be because there's no cookie cutter disciple. Unless you just look at like, well, we're all on this journey to follow Jesus, but it looks different. And so these are the different names. Every one of these little portraits has a different name on it. These are the people that we're going to be looking at, and we're going to be learning something from each of them. And then the last week, the 13th week, the 13 of Gallery 13, is when we hear from you guys, when we hear from some people in our own community of this is how I embody discipleship. And I'm Really, really excited about the series. I think it's going to be a great learning thing, especially as we look at some of the people that maybe we don't ever think about when we think about disciples. But we're going to get started today, and I want to get started by telling you a story about a guy named Larry Walters. This is one of my favorite stories of, of uh, recent history, and you might have heard it before. But Larry Walters uh, always dreamed of flying. He grew up as a kid wanting to fly, and he tried to become a pilot, but he couldn't because his eyesight was too bad. So he was a truck driver, but he never lost the dream to fly. Larry lived in California, lived in the Los Angeles area. And uh, one day in 1982, Larry decided to do something about his flying dream. And he had been concocting this dream for a while. And so Larry went out one day <clears throat> And he got his favorite lawn chair. And to his favorite lawn chair, he attached 45 helium balloons. And then he went and he sat in his lawn chair and he strapped himself in. And he got all of the things that you would get if you were going to do something like this. He grabbed his sandwiches to eat. 
He grabbed a CB radio. He grabbed a pellet gun. And he grabbed some beer. Larry's thought was this. He always wanted to fly. He attached all these balloons. And he was thinking that when they cut the tether, when they cut the rope, that he would you know, float up a few hundred feet and he would be able to achieve his dream of flying. And then he would take the pellet gun and he'd begin to shoot the balloons. And then he would descend slowly back to earth. Sounds like a plan. However, this is not what happened. So when Larry was all strapped into the, to the uh, lawn chair and when he told his, uh, his compatriots to cut the tether, cut the rope, Larry shot up into the air like a rocket to 15,000 feet. This was not at all in Larry's plan. So his first thought was like, well, maybe I should start, should start shooting the, the balloons, but at 15,000 feet, he's like, what if I upset the balancing of the lawn chair and just this ends really, really badly. So he, I think he shoots, at one point he shoots one balloon and just like, it's like a movie, he drops the pellet gun. Out of, the, out of the chair. So now he's floating. He's floating around Los Angeles airspace, and they actually have a map. He starts down in the lower left-hand corner, and then he floats up. And if you notice that symbol in the top right-hand corner of the map, what is that? That's an airport. So Larry, at one point, flies into the flight path of Long Beach Airport. And uh, this is an issue. So he shuts down air traffic coming into this airport. And then at one point, I think actually where it terminates, Larry, uh, he's, he, does, he survives this, but he floats into a power line causing a 20-minute blackout in the city of Long Beach, California. But at this point, he can climb down from the tower. So he climbs down, and people are tracking this. They actually have recordings of his CB radio, of him talking to people about this. It's, it's quite funny. Um, and this is one of my favorite quotes. So the, the authorities are coming because, let's face it, the authorities have got to come. Um, and the, an FAA official is coming, and I think they, they, the, the press talked to them, and he's like, he's like, we're not quite sure what FAA regulation he's violated, but we know he's violated one, and as soon as we figure out which one, he will be arrested. So they come, and, and he doesn't get thrown in jail, but he does have to pay a hefty fine. And, and here's the point of the story. At one point, as they're leading Larry away, somebody in the press say, says, Larry, why did you do this? And you know what Larry says? This is awesome. He says, man can't just sit around. And I want to tell you that story because when we start talking about discipleship and we start talking about faith and we start talking about church, I think a lot of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that church and following Jesus or being a Christian is about sitting around. And I want to suggest to you, before we get to talking about Peter, who's the first portrait, that we need to get clear about what discipleship is and what it's not. So, in Matthew 28, before Jesus is, is done with his time on earth, he has the 12 disciples with him, and he leaves them with this parting words. And you, if you've been around E3 at all, you know what these words are. Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make 
disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this and with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus talks about disciples in that passage, he uses the Greek word is, is a word, uh, mathetes. Let me, let me hear you say mathetes. Okay. That's Greek. It simply means uh, at, at one point, it does mean a person who follows and learns. But I want to tell you right off the bat that if you just stay there, if you just stay at the idea of a disciple is a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus even, then you're in danger of producing a life that is just a man who is sitting around or a woman who is sitting around. And that the concept of discipleship, as Jesus is trying to communicate, and as the New Testament is trying to tell us, the concept of being a disciple is amazingly more active and even revolutionary and subversive than just being a follower, just being a learner. And to do that, we need to take a little bit of a step back, and we need to kind of get at what Jesus' followers might have heard when they heard that word, Mathetes. Because to them, when Jesus uses the word, they're going to have a particular reaction to it based on their culture. When Jesus says, Mathetes, they have a very specific point of reference that comes up for them. And it starts with this idea of what we would call the rabbinical system. Now, Jesus gets called rabbi in the Gospels. And in his culture, rabbi really simply means like a wise man a master. It's not an official job description. He doesn't work for the synagogue. He's considered to be a wise man, a teacher who travels around from town to town and, uh, peop- and he, he finds students. They learn from him. But I want to look at the rest of the Hebrew Jewish educational system because Uh, The way they understood what learner meant, especially when it comes to spiritual stuff, is very, very specific, and it really blows up and explodes the idea of what a disciple is or could be. And it looks basically like this. When you were about anywhere from four or five to 10, you entered the Hebrew educational, religious educational system, and you started off with something called Bet Sefer, So from 4, 5 to 10, you started learning the Torah. Now, the Torah for the Jews are the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In my Bible, that's about 170 pages. Four, five-year-old kid enters Betzefer, and they begin to learn Torah. By the time they're done, they have memorized the Torah. 175 pages, two-column text in my Bible. They memorized it. That was the goal. They immersed themselves in this stuff. This was their life. They soaked it in. They breathed it in. They breathed it out. Now, if you were good at memorization, if you excelled at Bet Sefer, you went on to the next level of Hebrew education, which was Beth Midrash. And this lasted from 10 to 14. Now, at this point, you memorized, guess what? The rest of the Old Testament, which in my Bible 
is about 700 pages. You memorized it. And you also began to learn the Hebrew method of interpretation and commenting. So just to, just to pause for just a second, when you hear these stories about Jesus being in the temple and talking with his elders and talking about the Bible and he's like teaching them and asking questions, I used to, I used to think that was some kind of a sign of, of Jesus's divinity that, oh my gosh, he's this little kid. And Jesus was that, but he was also a product of his educational system. He was trained to be at 13, sitting around and going, this is what I think this passage means. This is what I think this passage means. Now, at the same time, there is a selection process going on. If you, if you don't do well at one level, you don't go on to the next level. You get mustered out, so to speak. And at this point, after Beth Midrash, if you are not cutting the mustard, so to speak, you get sort of channeled off into the family business. You get mustered out of Hebrew school because jobs have to get done and only the best of the best can go on to the next level. And the next level is Beth Talmud, which is just another level, another upping of the level of the challenge of interpretation and commenting. But at this point, what you do as a Hebrew uh, young man, it, the culture was, was male-dominated, so this is a guy's-only thing. Um, you sought out a rabbi. So these guys, these wise men, these masters who are wandering around Palestine, at this point, if you're the best of the best, if you have not flunked out, you are able to go and find a rabbi, and you would find the rabbi that you wanted to follow, and you would say, please accept me as your disciple. Please take me as your disciple. And the rabbi would go, all right, well, let's see if you can do this. So the rabbi would begin to quiz you on whatever he wanted to. Do you know your Torah? Do you know the rest of the writings? Do you know the histories? Can you interpret? And if you passed all of that, and, you, and the rabbi said, this is the best of the best, the rabbi would say, you may come and follow me. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Because the goal of the student is not just to get the good grades in this system. When Jesus talked about being a follower, when the disciples talked about being disciples, when Jesus has used the words mathetes, the, uh, the Hebrew word is talmidim. When Jesus is talking about this, it's not about just saying, okay, these are the best of the best, they have all the best answers, because the goal of any student was not just to know the right answer, it was to become like his rabbi. So when the student says, let me follow you, it's not just about saying, let me get the best answers from you. The student was expected to walk like the rabbi, to dress like the rabbi, to look like the rabbi, to look at life the way the rabbi looked at life. It was a total deal. Discipleship, mathetes, for Jesus's culture meant that you were not just a student, a follower, a learner, you were an imitator of your rabbi. You did what your rabbi did. You looked at life the way your rabbi looked at life. And do you know why? One of the reasons why is that when the rabbi looked at you and said, 
come and follow me? The rabbi is basically saying, guess what? I believe that you can do this. I'm not going to accept somebody that I expect to fail. When the rabbi says, come and follow me, he says, you can be just like me. I believe it. He's not calling people so that they can fail. So when Jesus starts talking in Matthew 28 about disciples, this is the image that they are hearing. Go and make imitators of me. Don't go and make just followers. Don't go and make people who learn about me. Go and make people that want to actually be another version of me. And let me tell you something. I believe with all my heart that this is the greatest need of the world today. The world doesn't need greater church attendance. The, the church is God's mechanism for work in the world. The church doesn't need more preachers. The church doesn't need more worship leaders or musicians. You know what the church desperately needs? More Jesus. The church needs more imitators. The church needs more people that say, it's not enough for me to follow him. It's not enough for me to learn from him. I want to imitate him to do the things he did, to look at life the way he did. And I believe I can do it because he's called me. So this is the backdrop with which we're operating. And if you are still at Matthew 4, when Jesus shows up, it says one day he's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, and he says, come and follow me. The rabbi is speaking, come and follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. So what do we know about Peter right now? What's that? He flunked out of Hebrew school. He's working in the family business. He's not the best of the best. He didn't make it all the way. So he's working, fishing, and he's doing the best he can, and he's learning. And all of a sudden, a rabbi came to him. He didn't seek out the rabbi because he couldn't, because he's not good enough. But a rabbi comes to him and says the words that most Hebrew boys probably wanted to hear. Come and follow me. And I imagine Peter's going, but, but you don't understand, I... I'm not the best of the best. I, I left that life. They told me I wasn't good enough. And, and Jesus is there going, come and follow me. And what's interesting is if you believe, I don't know what level Peter may have flunked out on. Maybe it was the 10-year-old. Maybe it was the 14, 15-year-old level. But if you just assume that everything we just said was true about the way, uh, the, way the Jews were brought up, if they knew this, then Peter may have heard a little hint of what that call was going to involve. Because Jesus says, come and I'm gonna make you fishers of men, which is a great metaphor. Peter is a fisherman. That spoke his language. Jesus is gonna go out and invite people into the kingdom. A fishing metaphor is a great metaphor. 
But there's also something else that Jesus hints at that is also present in his story and that maybe Peter would have heard. Because a fisher of men is a metaphor that the prophet Jeremiah uses. And if Peter would have known, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Jeremiah 16, 16 basically says this. God is speaking. He says, I'm sending for many fishermen who will catch them. I'm sending for hunters who will hunt them down in the mountains, hills, and caves. I'm watching closely. I see every sin. What's going on here is God talking about the religious leaders and the spiritual leaders of Israel. Jeremiah is written at a time when the nation of Israel had gone down the tubes because it had been led into idolatry and sin and all kinds of just uh, sideways living. And so God says, I'm going to send some fishermen and they're going to find the leaders who have done this and I'm going to deal with them. And that's exactly what Jesus ends up doing. He goes to the religious leaders of his day and says, you have led the nation wrong. And so maybe if Peter knew his scriptures the way he could have, not only would he have heard the rabbi saying, come, but he would have heard the rabbi saying, it's going to be hard. We are going to go to the corridors of power and we're going to tell them that God is not happy. Because... When Peter would have heard fisher of men, his mind would have gone, I remember fisher of men. Who said that about fisher of men? Jeremiah said something about fishers of men. Where was that? Oh, yeah. We're going to go after the leaders. But he, still, but he still does it. Why? Because the rabbi said, I've got confidence in you. I'm calling you because I believe that you can do this. So let's fast forward a little bit and see what else we can find out about Peter and, and how he embodies discipleship. Peter is, is uh, you know, and a lot of people really love Peter. He's not my favorite. He is crass. He's outspoken. He has humble beginnings. He makes a lot of mistakes. And that's okay. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has just been out doing some ministry. He tells the disciples to go get in a boat and take the boat across the Sea of Galilee. Storm comes up. Disciples get freaked out. They get really freaked out when they look up and who comes walking across the water but Jesus. So they're like, I'm really freaked out about this. And Jesus is like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, Tell me to come to you walking on the water. Why? Because his rabbi's walking on the water. And if he's expected to imitate his rabbi, then what should Peter be able to do? Walk on the water. So Jesus says, yes, come. To which point Peter said, I was only kidding. <laughs> no, Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Now, interestingly enough, why did you doubt me? That, that's what the New Living Translation, which is what we use here at E3, that's what it says. But the actual original Greek is a little bit more ambiguous. And if you were to pick up other, other translations of the Bible, what you would see is that they would say that Jesus said, 
Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And if you circle back to what might be going through Peter's mind at some time, Jesus said, I'm calling you to be my disciple. I'm calling because I believe that you have what it takes to be like me. And you can almost understand Jesus' question to Peter is like, not so much why did you doubt that Jesus, I could hold you up, but Peter, why did you doubt that you couldn't walk on water? Peter, I called you. Peter, I told you, you can have confidence. I have confidence in you, Peter. So maybe Peter's doubt wasn't so much that Jesus was somehow letting him down. But Peter's doubt was that I don't have what it takes to imitate my rabbi. And Jesus says, you shouldn't doubt because if I called you, I will give you what it takes to get the job done and be like me because do rabbis call people to fail them? No. Rabbis call people to imitate them. So a few chapters later, Jesus begins to tell his disciples, hey, there's gonna be bad things that are gonna happen to me. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be arrested. I'm gonna be tortured. I'm gonna be crucified, executed by the state. Peter speaks up at this point and gives his two cents to, uh, to, the, to the situation. And he says, heaven forbid, Lord, this is never gonna happen to you. And then Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Which I gotta believe that being called Satan by Jesus has gotta be like, like way down here in life experiences. I don't know a lot about the world, but I'm pretty sure you never wanna be called Satan by Jesus. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So at this point, Peter, the first disciple to be called, the one who's supposed to get Jesus and imitate him, drastically misunderstands Jesus and does not know what he's up to and calls it completely wrong. That's a big mistake. Moving on in Peter's life, they do go to Jerusalem. And after the last uh, supper, which uh, we take our sacrament of communion for, Jesus reiterates what's going to happen. It's going to be bad, and it's, gonna, it's about to happen now. And then in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, Jesus says, you know, uh, this is, all these things are about to happen, and you're not going to be able to go with me. You can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter, good old strong-willed Peter, good old Peter that always has something to say. He says, why can't I come with you now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. And then Jesus says, die for me? I'll tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And guess what happens? Peter denies Jesus three times. Three times people walk up to Peter and go, you look like, aren't you, you kind of talk like, you have like the right, you know, Christian Lifeway t-shirt. You got a, a, a Jesus fish on your car. You look like you could be one. And what does Peter say? Nah, ain't me. Nah, that's not me. But they're like, but, but you, you sound like him. Didn't I see you? And Peter's like, no, you got another guy. 
That's not me. That's not me. The first called, the guy that Jesus said, you, you can be like me. I give you the confidence. I've got confidence in you, Peter. You can do this. He's been with him three years. Three years walking around Israel. That's not like three years of like a correspondence course or an online class. You, he is with Jesus all the time. And at the end of the day, he denies knowing him. It's not me. But it doesn't end there, does it? John chapter 21. Jesus uh, has been resurrected and he comes back to the disciples. And, and, and probably critically, for all of his mistakes, Peter doesn't opt out of the system. For all of the things that he does, Peter doesn't, he, when Jesus shows up with the disciples, Peter's there with them. He doesn't run. He doesn't just throw in the towel and go, well, I guess I'm just not good enough. He stays. And there's this amazing dialogue between Jesus and Peter at the end of Jesus' time on earth. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these other disciples? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, he said. Then a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times does, P does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Most theologians think that this is just an absolute reversal of Peter's denial. Peter, you denied me three times, but I'm gonna invite you back three times. This is Peter's restoration. This is Peter's commissioning to say, Peter, you denied me. Peter, you misunderstood me. Peter, you lost confidence in what I said about you. But guess what, Peter? The mission is still the same. Feed my sheep. Do something. Don't just sit around. The rest of Peter's story vaguely uh, looks like this. Peter becomes a church leader along with Paul and James and, and John. He uh, is, is, is intricately associated with the church at Rome, which becomes the Catholic church over time. He is eventually, tradition says, crucified upside down. Because he says, as he's getting ready to face the cross, he says, you can't crucify me in a way that my rabbi was. I'm not worthy of it. So they crucify him upside down. He suffers and dies for the faith. And that is Peter's story. Most theologians also call Peter the representative disciple. So when you're reading the gospels, well, a lot of times what the gospel writers do is, is what Peter does is what the 12 are doing. The questions that Peter has are the questions that the 12 have. It's just like kind of a literary device. We can't have everybody asking questions of Jesus. So we're going to note the times that Peter asks the questions of Jesus. And that's the representative disciple. 
Peter is the representative of the disciple of the 12 and of the disciples of Jesus in the Gospels. And I want to suggest to you that Peter is a representative disciple of us today. That what Peter did and does through his successes and his failures are our successes and our failures. That we have all known parts of Peter's story. And I would simply ask it this way. How many of you have ever doubted Jesus' confidence in you? Have you ever questioned if you have the ability to actually be an imitator of Jesus? If Jesus said, walk on water, you're my imitator, you can do this, would you get out of the boat? Or would you say, I can't do it. Have you ever doubted Jesus' confidence in you to be like him? Because that's Peter's story. And I think that's our story. How about this? Jesus says, I'm supposed to be crucified. I'm supposed to be tortured. Peter's like, nah, Jesus, you got it wrong. Have you ever misunderstood Jesus? Have you ever been praying or been in the church or been in a growth group or read your Bible and you felt like maybe I should do something? I feel like God's calling me to do something. You're like, nah, that can't be it, Jesus. You gotta be wrong about this. Has there ever been a time in your life where you feel like God's asked you to do something and you have flat out said, either you're wrong or I'm just misunderstanding you. And eventually you've woken up and you've got the equivalent, not so much of get behind me, Satan, but you've gotten the sense of like, you had no idea what God was up to at the time. And you're like, oh, oh, did I miss that? Because if you have, that's Peter's story and that's your story. Or how about this? Have you ever been somewhere and someone's been like, you kind of look like, you kind of look like you like you kind of look like maybe one of these church people. Don't you go to church? Don't you follow Jesus? Don't you don't you do this thing? And in that moment, you were like, "Nah, I don't I don't I don't know him." And you've chosen essentially self-preservation or greed or just the desire to have what you want when you wanted it, over saying, no, I am Jesus's. I follow him. Because if you've ever been in a situation where you've chosen to protect yourself, to protect your interests, to choose greed over giving, to choose consumption over generosity, to choose compassion over hatred, then you've denied Jesus. Because in that moment you said, I don't know him. I don't know him. And maybe tomorrow when the life is easier, I can choose these things. But right now, I don't know that guy. If you have, then Peter's your story. But if you've ever done any of those things, Jesus has restored you. 
if you've ever denied Jesus, if you have ever misunderstood him, if you've ever doubted his confidence in you, guess what? Peter is still your story. Because in the same way that Peter stood with Jesus and Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. Even though he's known, he's done all these things. He's made all these mistakes. You can't undo the past. And Jesus is like, stop sitting around, Peter. You don't just sit around in the kingdom of God. You're meant to go do something. If it's, even if it's the craziest idea of like strapping 45 helium balloons to a lawn chair, you do something. Life with Jesus isn't about sitting around. Faith isn't about sitting around. Discipleship is about doing what? Imitating your rabbi. If Jesus walked on water, as crazy as it is, that's what he expects you to do. If Jesus heals people, that's what he expects you to do. If Jesus teaches, that's what he expects you to do because he's the rabbi. And if you call yourself a disciple, that's your mission. Part of, uh, part of Peter's story is also that, I'll say it this way, is that uh, Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter. Peter means kind of rock. And he says, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. And guess what? Jesus is still building his church. We're all Peter. We're all little rocks. And Jesus has confidence in all of us. Not because we're great, but because he called us. It's not because we bring so much to the table. Peter didn't bring much to the table at all. Jesus is just like, no, this comes because I've called you and I'll give you the confidence. So on this first week, and what we're gonna be doing is uh, flipping over all these portraits. And, and the best way to maybe understand Peter for this first week is to say that a disciple of Jesus fails, but keeps following. Stumbles, but doesn't stop. And does not settle for just sitting around. Would you guys pray with me?